from the New York City area, welcome to the Badass Counseling Show, where the master badass himself, Sven Erlinson, takes you deep and gives balm for the soul, baby. Welcome to another lightning round of the Badass Counseling Show. It is great to have you here, our podcast that we have so much fun making, and hopefully we are helping you, or at the very least entertaining you with my sheer stupidity more often than not. I am joined in studio by KC over in the booth monitoring all things, and right next to me I've got Rob, my master of all things technical, creative, and pretty much everything else. Oh, shucks. It's true, Rob. <laughs> Thank I you, Sven. Got any interesting words for me today, Rob? All I can think of, Sven, is um, all the work you do with souls. On your soul train, Don Cornelius got nothing on you. Wow. Well played. I, I accept that compliment. Thank you, Rob. Thank you. Go. So we are going to tear into it here, uh, and I am taking questions on a live feed, uh, and here we go. We're going to go ahead and dive right in. How do I move past my ex of 16 years dating one of my best friends? I'm struggling so bad with this. 16 years you were together and your ex is is dating one of your best friends. Uh, I have to ask, did the relationship end before the dating started? So was there a cheating element to it or was it the relationship ended and then uh, your ex dives into dating your best friend? Um, that changes the dynamic a bit, uh, but it doesn't change the fact that A, your relationship is done and B, your ex is now with your best friend or it's almost worse that your best friend is with your ex. What the actual fuck? I mean, seriously, I, I, I would really wanna ask you, what hurts more that your ex is gone and that the relationship is done, that your ex went and prowled around you and found your best friend, or that your best friend fucking betrayed you. I have to believe that you feel betrayed by your uh, by your best friend. It's like, what the fuck? Is there no, seriously, no loyalty? You're seriously going to go and be with my ex of 16 years. Go fuck yourself. Claim to be my best friend and you do that? Really? But you asked the question, how do I move past my ex of 16 years dating one of my best friends? I'm struggling so bad with this. Moving past anything requires going into the pain, requires going into the frustration, the sadness, all of it. We move past something. We let go of something by, you've heard me say it before, by holding on even tighter. You need to go into those feelings and, and not just, gee, they come up and I start crying or I get frustrated some days because it just creeps into my head. That's a sign that it's sort of chasing you and nipping at your heels. But to deliberately go into any sort of pain or anything that you're holding on to and wanting to move past, to, to deliberately go in it and sitting it, sit in it means to think about it, means to feel it, means to allow those feelings to come up. You won't be able to move past until you flush, you purge all of those feelings out of you. So what I'm strongly recommending to you is that you get a pad of paper and a pen and you just start, you can start by writing a letter to your ex. You can start by writing a letter to your best friend. And in these cases with these letters, letters you do not send, letters they will never see. Because the goal is not to somehow gain them back or get a response from them. The goal is to flush out all that you feel. I strongly recommend journaling out all of your feelings, writing poetry, writing a song, whatever it is that gets it out in words, what is going on inside of you, the thoughts and the feelings. And you have to keep flushing. And the more you do that, the more you put it into words, whether in writing or in counseling or in a support group. But giving it words, the more we talk it out, the more we get it out in writing or in a letter, we begin to feel lighter, lighter. And so you ask, how do I move past? So your desire is to no longer feel or be obsessed with this. And I don't mean obsessed like it's a bad thing. We, we've all been in the place where we feel obsessed over uh, a lover that we've lost or a relationship that we've lost or when someone very close to us has hurt us. And all of those feelings, you need to be deliberate daily about flushing out a bit more and flushing out a bit more. All right, next question. How do you get over knowing what I know now that I could have saved my marriage of over 10 years? You have a piece of knowledge now that could have saved your marriage 
of over 10 years and you're asking, how do I get over knowing it? And I'm betting what you're really saying, I'm gonna take a shot at it. What you're really saying is, how do I get over the fact that there was an answer and I didn't know it back then and I wasn't able to save my marriage of over 10 years? And you're struggling with the sense of loss, clearly. Because it, you know, getting over knowing now, in other words, I think about shit, if I would have just known this back then, I could have saved it, which implies that you have a desire in yourself to have saved it. There you have a desire in yourself to have that marriage back. If you didn't miss the person or if they were a total fucking asshole and I'm glad to be done with it, it's unlikely that you would be saying, gosh, I feel so bad that I didn't, I didn't save it or I, I could have saved it. So that implies that a part of you is still longing for or wishing that you had or wishing that you had known back then what you know now so that you could have saved the marriage so that you could still have that marriage today. And so what that implies to me is there's something that you wish you had that you don't have anymore and it's gone. And so that implies grief, grieving. And so what you have to do, you say, how do I get over it? You get over it precisely in the exact last question. You get over it by going into it by bringing all of those feelings out and, and doing those things that remind you of that lover. I used to go to a favorite bagel shop and have an everything bagel and a diet Pepsi because that's what my ex liked to eat at the bagel shop and that was her favorite soda. And so I would do that and I kept doing it till eventually the bagel shop and that particular bagel no longer held any sort of emotional charge. It's exorcising the demons it's taking that favorite shirt that you still wear or still have or still smell that you have in your closet from your ex. It's whatever it might be, watching that movie that we used to love to watch together every holiday season and keep watching it and watching it until it's, it just doesn't hold the charm that it once had. But to hold on to something until it no longer has the emotional charges. This is what it means to decharge memories that have strong emotional charges and keep me attached to something in the past. This is what it means when my love, that love can actually keep us from moving forward. I love, I miss, I long for that person and that keeps you from moving forward. So there are times when feeling love isn't helpful and so we have to let go of love and it's kind of strange to think of that. Well, how could love be bad? Well, if it's keeping you in the past and you're clearly saying, I wanna get over it. You said, how do you get over it? That implies you want to get over it. So your love for something in the past that you now have knowledge that, God, I could have fixed it, implies that you want it. So you've got to allow out those feelings of love and longing and let it out and let it out and let it out. And eventually it will be done. All right, next question. Is it good to be okay with a significant other talking to an ex that they had children with as long as they don't cross a line? Is it good to be okay? That implies that you are okay and it's almost like you find yourself questioning, should I be okay with this or should this freak me out? I, I hear you saying that you actually are okay with it and you just want sort of reassurance. Um, I've been in a relationship for nine years with an amazing person and she is not only in contact with her uh, former husband uh, that she has a child with, but he's become a friend of mine. And he actually occasionally spends holidays with us because their shared daughter is, of course, in our home. And, um, and I just think the world of the guy. He's a hell of a man, good man. And uh, he and I get along fine. So you said, as long as they don't cross the line, is it good to be okay? Sure, sure. And I have to believe it's good for those children too to see the adults getting along, playing nice, being respectful, being kind to each other. It's a good thing. But yeah, as long as they don't cross lines, that I think is a, is a wonderful thing and, uh, and you should be okay with that. It, it sounds like you already are okay with that. Give yourself permission to trust your own feelings and that you are okay with it. I think it's great. Next question. Why am I still so in love with her even though she hurts me? When we're allowing someone to hurt us, it's because the hurting is all big amount of bad stuff. And why do I allow someone to put a big amount of bad stuff on me or in me, hurting me? That's what the big bad stuff is. We're doing it because we're wanting at least a little bit of good stuff. We tolerate big amounts of bad stuff because we're wanting something. Either we're wanting something or we're fearing something. You're wanting some amount of love, which says to me you've been conditioned to believe that potentially that's all you're worth, that you're willing to sell the farm 
You're willing to give away everything. You're willing to let someone mistreat you, just hoping I'll get a little bit of love in return. This is someone who has been conditioned. You have been conditioned from a very, very young age to believe that's all you're worth, to believe that I'll even eat shit, which is basically what you're doing. You're being hurt by her and you're still staying, hoping to get that love, but it's also you fear something. And what I'm willing to bet is that you fear being alone. You fear her not being in your life because then you would be alone. Well, for a lot of people, it's like, oh, I fear being alone. I fear being alone. What I say is it's not alone as in, you know, alone in a room, there's nobody in the room, but alone as in I don't have someone. And why would someone fear that? Because when I don't have someone, then all of those voices that I was taught about myself as a child, the ones I'm aware of and the ones I'm not even aware of, all of those voices come rushing up into our head. See, I'm no good. See, no one wants me. See, I am unlovable. I knew it. This is what I've always thought. They were right. I really don't matter. I do suck. I'm unlovable. See, all those voices. But as long as you have someone, even if they're being mean to you and hurting you, at least I have someone, which is a counter message to all those messages I got as a child. And that is, I'm no good. I'm not wanted. I'm unlovable. Well, then why is this person here? Clearly, this person wouldn't be here if all of those messages were true. So this person is a living, breathing counter message to everything I was taught about myself. And I will do everything in my power to hold on to them. I will hold on. I will, I'll give you everything. Just don't leave. Don't leave. Because then you're leaving. You're walking away from me confirms, confirms what I was taught about myself my entire life. And so you're in love with her because she brings you a sense of worth because she gave even a small amount of love and that was still, it may be only a triple smidgen, but that's still triple the smidgen that you got in your childhood, that you got so little love that you're willing to endure all manner of shit to get a little bit more. That's why you're still in love. You're wanting something, you're wanting the love, but you also fear, you fear what happens inside of you if she leaves. Next question. She has a boyfriend and we are going through a divorce. She thinks she has done nothing wrong. Um, and clearly that bothers you. You don't ask a question, but let's tinker with this one. She has a boyfriend and we're going through a divorce. Um, she thinks she has done nothing wrong. Actually, you put a question mark on the end and I'm sort of wondering what's the question. I sort of hear you saying, well, so what the hell do I do? She has a boyfriend, we're going through a divorce and she thinks she has, is it that, you see her having a boyfriend before the divorce goes through as doing uh, doing something wrong? Or what part is it? Is that she's not acknowledging what she did in the relationship that was wrong? But it sounds to me like you wouldn't have even brought up that she has a boyfriend while you're going through a divorce unless it bothered you. So I'm betting that's what you believe she is doing wrong, that she should wait until uh, the divorce. So clearly that brings you pain. It would seem to me that you are saying it hurts that she has a boyfriend and she doesn't care. She doesn't think she's doing anything wrong. She's basically saying, fuck you to you. I don't care. Not only am I divorcing you, I'm dating someone else. That's how little I care about you. And that fucking hurts, doesn't it? To know that someone cares so little, not just that they're willing to end the relationship, but they're willing to move right on and date somebody else. And so what you've got to do is you have to flush out that pain, you have to flush out all of that sadness, the grief. It's a death, death of a relationship, death of a dream. And the love that you still have for her, that can live on even if you don't have the relationship anymore. You know, I have, I have fond memories of my two failed marriages or my two marriages, they weren't even necessarily failed. I think fondly upon those. I have love for those periods of my life and love for each of those women, even though I'm not in love with them anymore. You can hold on to that love or just let that love be a part of your history without actually loving and wanting that person back. But yeah, she hurt you and you are feeling hurt and your feelings of pain need to get out of you so that it's no longer in you. And that's what's gonna enable you to move forward. And if you don't get that pain out, if you don't get all that grief out, you're gonna be carrying it into your next relationship, which means you're walking in your next relationship with one foot in that relationship and one foot still in the past. And that is not a recipe for a good relationship. Next question. All right, a bunch of you right now are asking, how do I flush? How do I flush? How do I flush out cause from someone else close to you? Um. I really cover this a lot, but I'm going to do it again right now very quickly. You flush by giving words. 
I am a big believer in the power of words. You give words to what you're feeling. You give words to the memories. You get a pad of paper and a pen, or you do it in your computer if that's where it's gonna be safer, and you start flushing out your memories. Because what you have, what keeps you attached to pain, whether it's someone close to you or a former lover or someone dying or a dream dying or the death of a career or a loss of money or whatever it might be, moving. There's, there's grief and moving because you're leaving behind so much. You have memories that have emotional charges attached to them, the sadness, the frustration, the anger, the betrayal, disappointment, whatever the feelings are. And what enables us to move forward in life, what enables us to begin to feel lighter and live happier and, be, and start the next phase of our life happy as a more authentic version of my own self is when we decharge those memories, when we pull the emotional charge off of the memory. And that's what flushing out is, is we're writing about, you can do poetry. I, I have about three or four or five different tools in my book. There's a hole in my love cup that are there for you to flush all of this out and to begin to identify the memories that are still emotionally charged. What I recommend to people is just take a pad of paper and a pen and list every single memory you can think of in your past that has an emotional charge attached to it. Or if it's a particular person that there's pain associated with that person and you wanna decharge, you wanna be able to let go and flush out that pain, so this person asked the question, how do you flush out pain caused from someone close to you? List every single memory you have about this person, with this person, uh, events that happen that has any sort of emotional charge where you think about it and it turns your stomach a little bit or you get a little bit pissed off or you get a little bit sad. Any memory you have with that person that has any sort of emotional charge, list it. Bullet point those down the page. List every single item that has an emotional charge and then after each item that you've listed, every memory that you've listed, then list every emotion that you have attached to it that you can think of or that you feel when you think about that memory. And then you go into each one of those emotions and you talk it out. You write about it in uh, a journal or write a little letter about uh, or a section of a letter about that event and what it makes you feel. And again, in my book, There's a Hole in My Love Cup, I give you tools exercise methods that are highly effective. One of them is what's called the Sedona method. There's another one called an accepting technique. And I don't know why they work, but they work for decharging. And so you cycle through this and you journal about it. And the more you identify the feelings and allow yourself to feel the feelings and put it into writing, the more you do that, that emotional charge gets removed from the memory. So then you've got a memory, but your stomach's not getting churned up. You're not getting sad about it. You're not getting pissed off. That's what it means to decharge, to flush out the pain inside. All right. After this short break, I'll continue to take you deep, deep, deep right here on the Badass Counseling Show. You've heard Sven talk a lot about his book, There's a Hole in My Love Cup. And that's because Sven hears from his followers a lot about how much the book has helped them. If you're not sure how to handle the issues getting in the way of a better life, you're not alone. And you have a lot of choices, but thousands of readers will tell you that this is a great place to start by yourself and at your own pace. So go to badasscounseling.com and order There's a Hole in My Love Cup, and you'll have Sven right there with you as you forge your best future. It's totally badass. So get started today. This show provides soul counseling intended to entertain and inform and is not medical advice. Now, back to the badass. And we are back with a lightning round episode, taking questions, and we're going to dive right back in. I'm broken and need help. Last therapist ran her mouth about what I told her. No one to trust. Oh, uh, wow. You had a therapist who ran her mouth. When I was reading your question, uh, when I was first reading it, I saw last therapist ran her mouth. I thought you were going to say ran her mouth in session, that she was always talking about herself or she wouldn't ever shut the fuck up, right? But you said ran her mouth about what I told her. That, If I'm hearing you correctly, she went outside of session, broke confidence, broke confidentiality, and told people about her sessions with you. That's not okay. I mean, that's like literally illegal. I would encourage you to file... Uh, make a filing with the governing body in your particular state or wherever you are. That is so not okay. But that's not what you're asking about. You, I'm broken and need help. But my last therapist ran her mouth about what I told her. There's no one to trust. You can trust 
therapist. They are bound legally. That therapist was an absolute fool because she could actually blow up her entire practice, lose her living by doing that. And most therapists that I am familiar with are very zip-lipped, tight-lipped about things that go on in session. They have to be. It's the law. It's literally the law. But if you feel like you just can't trust a therapist right now, that's okay. Again, to what I've been saying so far this uh, in this lightning round, you can do a lot of healing on your own. I strongly recommend actually that you get the book. There's a hole in my love cup because I, that's 80% of my counseling method right there. I originally wrote it for clients I had or former clients or people overseas, deployed overseas, and so that they could do healing on themselves. And for people who, for whatever reason, uh, couldn't reach out to me or maybe couldn't afford my services or what have you, And so 80% at least of my counseling method is in that book and it steps you through how to heal from your own stuff through journaling and through these other tools that I teach. All right. How do I repair relationship with kids who I've lost connection with since they were 11 and 12? Okay, you don't indicate how old they are now, okay? And so I'm going to just spitball it because I don't know. I'm gonna approach this as if they are adults now, post age 18. Okay, such that you uh, speaking with them is legal. It's not defying any laws. If they are minors, uh, that comes with its own set of issues. But how do I repair a relationship with my kids whom I've lost connection with? Here's what I recommend very, very honestly. The goal is the healing of the child. The goal, ultimately, while you may want that relationship, the goal is the healing of the child. I mean, let me ask you this question. If Uh, you were presented with the question of you could either have a relationship with your child, but they wouldn't be healed from all of the pain, their life pain, potentially some of it that you caused, okay? If you could have a relationship with your child, but not be healed versus you could have your child be healed, but you wouldn't get a relationship with them. If you had to pick one or the other, which would you pick? And the truth is, and this is going to show you my value system, but the goal is the healing of the fucking child. And if I have to sacrifice my relationship, even if I never get a relationship with that child, if I knew that that child is healed, especially of the shit that I caused, I could at least sleep much more peacefully at night. The goal is the healing of the child, not the repair of the relationship. Now, does it have to be one or the other? No, of course not. But... If you are trying to repair a relationship because you want the relationship, then your attempt to repair the relationship is fundamentally selfish. But if your desire to have a relationship is so that you can apologize for what you've done wrong, so that you can at least convey to the child that I do love you. and and, And so the way you approach it is in that same spirit. I would recommend going to, and again, I'm assuming that we're talking about an adult child over age 18. And I would reach out to that child, uh, whether in letter or in in phone call. I would recommend a letter because that allows the child to have space. Sometimes if we're in a phone call or in person, the person is responding to, feels forced to respond in person and it's uncomfortable and they often don't have time to process, to think, to know what I want to respond. But by putting it in writing, it's there for them to read or not read. They are in control of it. And that's honoring their space. I would recommend putting in writing your love for your children and your acknowledgement of the stuff you did wrong. I mean, I'm not trying to be rude, but if you lost connection since they were 11 or 12, it implies either that by law, your children were taken away from you. And by law, that can include law of divorce, but it must have been, or that you walked away from them. And for children to be taken from a parent, if it was by law, it implies, and it may not be this, you may be completely the victim in this case. I don't know. Well, ultimately the children are always the victim, but it implies that you might've done something wrong. And if you walked away from your own children, I'm not saying there weren't good reasons for doing so if that's what you did, but from the child's perspective, from the child's perspective, they likely have a lot of pain wrapped up in their memories or thoughts of you. And the bottom line is, if the goal is the healing of the child, why not own it? So in your letter to your children saying, I love you so much and I miss you. And I know that I failed you in X, Y, and Z and A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and H. 
listing the ways that you know you failed your children and hurt your children. Because if you can own that, that is a profound relief for a child. We uh, taped a session of a counseling episode of the Badass Counseling Show, and the particular guest uh, that I was talking with said that her father, as an adult now, her father has come to her and apologized numerous times for the pain he caused her as a child. And I asked her, how did it feel? She said, it was such a relief, Sven. You know, she was saying it's sort of like a burden off of her back that we relieve our child of the pain that we cause them by sort of taking it back. Every time you harm, hurt, insult, uh, inflict pain on your child, on any person really, but especially on one of your own children, it's like you put a rock in that big burlap sack on their back. And every parent makes mistakes. Every parent hurts the child, intentionally or unintentionally. Every parent puts rocks in that big burlap sack on your child's back. And the more you hurt them, the more rocks it is. And so the goal, really, of good parenting, of deliberate parenting, whether in the moment or much later, is to take those rocks back that I put there. I put those rocks in in that sack on your back, son, daughter, I want those rocks back. You shouldn't have to carry them and you never have to have a relationship with me. Now, and if you can say that to your child, you don't ever have to forgive me and you don't ever have to have a relationship with me. You're giving them the power. Otherwise, if you're pushing towards a relationship, it's still on your agenda. And that registers inside of the person that you're addressing. It registers in the child that it's still about you. It's about you. If we're just about me, you wouldn't be pushing for forgiveness. You wouldn't be pushing to uh, reestablish and repair the breach in the relationship. Make it about the child and eat the shit that you rightly deserve by either A, having your kids taken from you, which you likely did something to cause in all likelihood, not for sure, and I'm not trying to blame the victim, but there's gotta be a good reason that you haven't seen your children since they were 11 or 12. So either they were taken from you or you walked away and yeah, there's gotta be some fucking ownership because there are very powerful feelings inside your children with regard to you and you need to own that shit. And the goal isn't to be right or to be factually correct. The goal is to allow the children to have their truth, their experience, their feelings of that event and to have those feelings and memories validated because otherwise you're trying to force your reality onto them to defend yourself. That doesn't end well because it's negating the child's experience. Two people can have a very similar experience yet have two very different experiences inside. And if the goal is to heal the child, then that child's experiences, that child's feelings regarding those experiences have to be validated. They have to see the light of day and know that it's safe for them to see the light of day, that their truth is seen, that they are seen, that their feelings are seen, accepted, and acknowledged as true and valid. That's how you do it. All right, next question. Here's a tough one. This is from Kat. She says, my oldest's dad... He's 36 now. The oldest, her oldest child is, uh, her oldest son is 36. And, uh, but the dad unalived himself, killed himself when our son was 24. 12 years ago, basically, my oldest son, uh, his father uh, killed himself. And I don't think he's recovered. Yeah, it's understandable, isn't it? It's understandable. To have your parent die is one thing, and that alone is horrible. And the pain over that, the sadness over that, all of the feelings that well up inside and that are there over a death, the loss of a parent at any age is powerful. But to have that parent have killed themselves, that's extraordinarily powerful. And you say, I don't think my son has recovered. Yeah. And you would know, you would sense it, you're, you're in tune to it. And you wouldn't be saying that unless you were clearly very, very concerned. And what I would strongly recommend to you is that you convey gently, calmly to your son that you are concerned and that you encourage him to get healing, to get counseling help. I would strongly recommend professional counseling help particularly grief counseling. There are specialists, professionals who specialize in grief counseling because that's what's needed here and and getting out all of the feelings surrounding the suicide of his father because those feelings, they build up inside and they drag a person down. You said you're seeing it. 
I don't think he's recovered. So clearly you are seeing things. So it manifests that pain inside and all of the feelings surrounding it manifest externally as well. And you're seeing it, you're sensing it in his energy, you're sensing it in how he's living his life and he needs to get healing. And you need to gently, gently push for that. And sometimes the gently is planting seeds, just watering those seeds every now and then, not forcing it, not forcing an agenda, but doing it respectfully. Because yes, your son does need help healing from that. Next question. Anxiety surrounding existence and death. How can one deal with scary thoughts like this? You deal with them by going into them. A lot of people try to avoid the scary thoughts in their life, whether it's regarding existence and death or whether it's regarding past memories, a hard childhood, a a relationship where you were grossly mistreated, whatever it might be, very often people will attempt to run from those feelings. And you're saying you are experiencing anxiety around existence and death. And I would encourage you to sit in it and begin to flush out those feelings and particularly the anxiety. And I would want to ask you the question, what specifically are you feeling anxiety? Is it that you fear dying and not having truly lived? What ultimately, I would encourage you to consider for yourself to sum up in one sentence or less, what ultimately is the fear? Is it fear of dying, fear of never having really lived, uh, fear that you're not being your authentic self? Fear that you're spending your life being an an inauthentic or not real version of your own self. What is the deepest fear, the deepest feeling you have regarding existence and death? Can you put words to it? And the more you do that, and then write that out, literally put it on paper, and then ask yourself the question, write on the paper, why? Why does that bother me so much? Or what's the origin? Write about that. What's the origin of this fear or when? And this is one of the most pivotal questions. When you're doing self-work, this is one of the most pivotal questions that I use in counseling, but I use it on myself when I'm doing my own journaling and letter writing, is I ask myself not just why, when, how, or why, how, where, what, but when. When is a very powerful question. When did I start really feeling this, this strong anxiety regarding existence and death? When was the first time I felt it? And why then? Why not two years earlier? Why not six months after? Why then? Because when we, can, when we can pinpoint a when, very often we can further pinpoint if we hold our own feet to the fire. Why then? Oh my God, I know why then. Because da, 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 whatever. When we can pinpoint a when, a when, we can see some sort of causation. Something happened before or leading up to that when that caused this. I'm willing to bet if you have anxiety around existence and death and the scary thoughts that there's an origin for this, that this got tripped, the the wire got tripped somehow, some experience, and you begin to heal of the anxiety and the fear surrounding existence and death when you can find the origins of where the hell this came from and how it got inserted and why you've held on to it so long. So it's exploring the feelings of fear the feelings of fear and anxiety, but it's also exploring the origins of these fears. Next question. All right. Well, here's a follow-up on that. This is uh, Teresa asked the question, I have severe anxiety about death and health. My father died of cancer when I was six. Oh, absolutely. Parent dies when you're six years old. Of course, you're going to be terrified of death. You're going to be terrified of everyone that you care about dying. You're going to be terrified of your own death. Why? because you experienced an egregiously, egregiously traumatic event when you were tiny, when you were defenseless. And my question would be, if you and I were sitting sort of having a beer or talking on a park bench, I would wanna ask you the question, when you were six and your father died of cancer, were you confronted with or encouraged to, given space to start talking about your feelings and what it was like for you? Was there an adult in your life who came to you and said, um, and it's Teresa asking this question, and said to you, Teresa, how are you feeling? Teresa, it must be very sad. Allowing you to cry, allowing you to talk about your daddy that you had lost to cancer when you were six years old. Were you allowed and encouraged and given safe space to get your feelings out? Because if you weren't, then that means you have a whole lifetime of feelings starting from way back there regarding death inside of you. And so for you saying, I have severe anxiety about death and health, 
I'm willing to bet that you were not allowed, you were not encouraged to get out all that pain. This started way back when you were six. Actually, it probably started before that because you said your father died at six, which means he had been dying prior to that. So you, you may have feelings going all the way back to five or four or three or two. And that needs to come out because the anxiety that you're feeling now has likely been in there that you never were encouraged and given the tools for getting all of this out. And so now it has to come out because it's so filling your love cup that all you feel all the time is anxiety. All of those past feelings have to come out. You have to sit in them. You have to begin to journal and go to counseling and use the other techniques that I talk about in the book. You have to use these to get this pain and all of that anxiety and all of the fear out of you. Next question. Can being left in New York City once at the age of about eight lead to a lifelong issue with abandonment? <laughs> oh, yeah. I live in the New York City area. My office leading up to COVID, before I uh, closed it for COVID, my office was right in Midtown, all right? I took the train into Grand Central, walked about 20 minutes through Bryant Park and to my office. And for years, I would you know drive in if I weren't taking the train. I've lived in Los Angeles, San Francisco, Minneapolis, Ohio. I have driven this country up and down, and I have never been so fraught with anxiety than driving in New York City. And it's not because of the honking cars and the cabs and the crazy drivers and the big trucks. No, it's because there are pedestrians everywhere and I'm just constantly terrified. I'm going to hit someone. They're everywhere. I'm terrified in New York City driving. It took me years, literally, to finally feel somewhat comfortable, but you're still on high alert. That's in, if I just walk in New York City, and I know plenty of other people have this experience, walking from my office to the train station, to Grand Central, is stressful. It's crowded people everywhere, cars going every direction, noise. And I'm an adult. I'm an old-ass man. I am 55 motherfucking years old. So an eight-year-old, you ask, can being left in New York City once at the age of about eight? <laughs> I'm just going to hold off on the rest of the question. Left in New York City once at the age of eight. Eight years old and you're left in New York City. Now, you don't say if you're left outside or if you're left in your hotel room and just forgotten, but you say New York City. You didn't say, oh, I was left in a, in a hotel room you, or something like that. You say, I was left in New York City, which implies you were forgotten among the crowds, that you were out in the crowds of New York City. The absolute terror, because you ask, could that lead to a lifelong issue with abandonment? Short answer, yes, it absolutely could. That is such a profoundly traumatic event. There is no doubt that feeling of alone, the feeling of loss, the feeling like I'm so scared, I'm so afraid, I'm so everything. A massive, New York City by nature is massive sensory overload. Massive. For an eight-year-old, it's beyond, beyond massive sensory overload. Could that, so could that lead to a lifelong fear of an issue with abandonment? Absolutely. And of course, I would want to explore more uh, what accompanied that event? Because there may be, you know, how did it happen? What happened afterwards? Because there may be other issues that feed into that that happened both prior and subsequent to that where you got confirming messages or preceding messages to that event that made you feel a fear of an abandonment. But that event alone would be extraordinarily powerful for any eight-year-old. For any, to be very honest with you, any adult that is new to New York City that maybe comes from another part of the country or from another part of the world to be alone and stranded in New York City, alone, left by the group or whatever, that would be a highly stressful occurrence. So yes, answer to your question is absolutely. Much more to come right after this short break. I am one of the lucky few who've had the privilege not only to read his books, but also to experience Sven face-to-face -face for countless one-on-one -on -one sessions. His intelligence, knowledge, and deep empathy have had a deep impact on me and the people I love. And I can say that he is amongst the most important people in my life for the last 10 plus years. I am thankful for you, badass Sven. Back with more to kick your ass, here's Sven. Hi. We are back with the lightning round. Great to have you back. Thanks so much. I got a follow-up uh, on the feed that I'm getting all these questions from. I got a follow-up comment 
saying that the person, uh, Sheila, got lost in New York City as a child, as an eight-year-old, got lost at the Statue of Liberty. Now, as we all know, Statue of Liberty is on an island, right? So that means they got lost at the Statue of Liberty on an island all by themselves. Yeah, that would be scary. And you could absolutely feel a sense of absolute bewilderment and aloneness. And yeah, you've got some healing to do there, Sheila. All right, follow up. Here we go. <laughs> and then someone else chimes in. I got lost in Target as a child and freaked out. I couldn't imagine New York City. Amen to that. All right, here we go. Had a lot of people break my trust the last few years. Don't feel like I can trust anyone anymore. A lot of pain there, right? To feel like you can't trust means that trust has been broken, as you specifically state. And so fearing trusting again is going to lead to reclusiveness, right? I'm going to close up, I'm going to close up walls. I'm going to erect walls between me and other people. I'm not going to open my heart. And so what happens then is the beginning of the end, really. Remember that old line uh, from that great Bob Dylan classic where he croons, he not busy being born is busy dying. Oh, that's a challenge to the soul. That's a challenge to the pain inside of all of us that we feel so overwhelmed at the mere thought of touching. It's a challenge to all of us. I mean, what's Dylan saying? I mean, inarguably one of, if not the greatest songwriter of all time. And he writes, he not busy being born is busy dying. To be born, to continually be born, means to go after that which breathes life into me, to not close down. And to not want to trust, to not want to open up is a shutting down. And the truth is you can choose that for your life. You can choose that for your life because you're afraid of trusting. And you sound completely justified. If you've had a lot of people break your trust or you had a major relationship or two where your trust was broken, where you were so grievously wounded, it makes sense that you would want to not open up. And so we erect those walls and we don't want to come out from behind those walls until it's absolutely safe. And it never feels absolutely safe. And we may actually encounter people who are really good people who knock on those walls and say, hey, let me in, show me who you are. I want to love on you. But we're so afraid of them leaving, so afraid of them breaching our trust that we don't open up. And eventually they get tired of knocking and they walk away. So we've just created the very eventuality we feared most and that caused us to not open up. And so you can choose to not open up. You can choose to not trust. It's your life. You get to spend it your way. There's nothing wrong with that. It's your life. But it becomes harder and harder to connect. It becomes harder and harder to have happiness the more fear takes over our lives. And what you're saying is I've been hurt so much, I don't want to open up. I don't want to trust. And that's fear. Fear of being hurt again. Fear of having your trust breached. And so... The goal then, if it is your desire to reconnect someday, when you are ready, when you are done sort of grieving all the pain that you've experienced, then you have to go inside and begin to flush out that pain. And I've talked about it at several points in the podcast today. I've talked about how you go about flushing that out. But writing about, going in counseling about, and using some of the other tools, all of the memories that are surrounding these breaches of trust and all of the feelings surrounding these breaches of trust, flushing it out, flushing it out, flushing it out. And then what happens is we grow less burdened, less anxious, and we grow willing to open up again. Willing to open up again, knowing that I might get hurt again. That, that is always there. Do you know that there's really only one way, only one absolute way to know whether or not you can trust someone? You can guess or you can gauge someone's character in advance and sort of take an educated guess, but there's only one way to actually know whether or not you can trust someone, and that is to trust them, and to trust them a little bit more, and to trust them a little bit more. In the end, you can't know if you can't trust them. You can't know whether or not they are trustworthy until they show it next, until they disprove the theory, until they disprove the trust. And so at some point, we reopen and we begin to trust a little bit more. And we may go about it differently. Maybe we go about it a bit more slowly. Maybe after we've done all the flushing out of all of our pain and all of our sadness, we become more in tune to red flags that things are changing or this doesn't feel good. I'm going to back off a little bit. The more in tune we become with ourselves and our own intuition, the more we see when there are red flags and the more we protect our own self, not in shutdown mode, 
But we don't keep opening up if someone is mistreating us or if something doesn't feel right or if they're not honoring our boundaries. So if the goal at some point, if you reach the point where despite all the times where you've had your trust breached, if the goal then is to open up again and trust again and have new relationships, then it requires purging all of the pain and all of the sadness and all of the emotion uh, surrounding those breaches of trust. Next question. Do you feel you can trust your significant other but not trust others with your significant other? You know, this is this is sort of an interesting thing when, uh, you know, one person in a couple says, it's not that I don't trust you. It's just that I don't trust, you know, others around you. I don't trust, you know, if, if it's a woman. It's not that I don't trust you, sweetheart. I just don't trust men. Or it's not that I don't trust you, honey. It's just that I don't trust women around you. You know, I know how women can be or I know how men can be. And ultimately... What that's conveying to me is if you genuinely believe that you can trust your significant other and yet you live in fear, sort of paranoia, that you uh, can't trust people around them, all right, but you do trust uh, your significant other, then in a way it's illogical. What do you fear them doing to your significant other if you can trust your significant other and know they would not cheat on you or deliberately hurt you in any way? Then where's the problem? What do you fear the, the person around your significant other, what do you fear them actually doing? I mean, apart from kidnapping them and, and holding them hostage, which yes, there's always that remote possibility, but that's not really what you're talking about, is it? You're afraid of someone around your significant other talking your significant other into it or somehow getting them to cheat on you, right? Well, in other words, you're basically saying that your significant other is weak and can't be trusted, isn't strong enough to withstand the potential um, salesmanship or coercion of the people around him or her. And that, to me, is basically you saying you don't trust your significant other. You don't believe in your significant other's ability to simply say no. And what it potentially means is this is one of those cases where it's not about your significant other. It's about your own fears inside. And I'm guessing that fear of the people around your significant other that fear inside of you predates this relationship. You have a fear. You walk around in a relationship. You specifically state you're in a relationship with a significant other that I trust. That says it's almost like your brain is looking for problems, looking, choosing to live in fear because you're so fearful, all right? And that, like I said, predates the relationship. And you've got to go into where the hell is this coming from? Likely you have been left. You have been cheated on before. You've had someone you love, and it could have been a lover. It could have been a parent. could have been a best friend. You've had people leave you. You've had people hurt you in the past, and you fear being hurt again. And what is the worst hurt you can imagine? Well, certainly one of them is being cheated on. And so you have fear surrounding your significant other, not the person, but what others might basically talk your significant other into, which uh, does imply a distrust of your significant other. Next question. Why do I feel like I am living to please everyone else and make everyone else happy. You're feeling that way because somewhere in you, you probably are. You're living to please everyone else. And someone who's living to please everyone else and is giving everything to everyone else and is going overboard for others is someone who isn't going overboard for themselves. They're fundamentally trying to purchase love. They're saying, I'm going to give you this huge amount of love. Just give me a little bit of love in return, right? It's that whole relationship camel thing that I talk about in my book. Is that I'm going to give you everything. And that's really a bad investment. When you're giving a whole lot and you're getting a little bit out, that's a bad investment. But what it reflects is that you believe that's all you're worth or you've had so little love in your life that you're happy to get even a little bit. And the fear driving it is, if I don't keep doing more and more and more and more, you won't love me. If I don't do more and more and more and more, you'll leave me. And so you're pleasing everyone else. And very often, someone who's spending their whole life pleasing someone else uh, more and more experiences the frustration of um, it never goes my way. I never get the love in return. That's right. Because people are happy to take if you're happy to give. But until you make it about you know, getting your own needs met and your own wants met, and as well, going back into the origins, going back into your past and discerning where the hell you were taught that you matter so little, where the hell you were taught that you have to do everything for everyone else so that you can get a little bit of love in return, where the hell you were taught to be afraid of people not wanting you. 
You have to go back to those origins. That's how we get the original pain out. And that's how we begin to love on ourselves. So we're no longer giving a huge amount to get a little amount, but we're giving and we're giving insofar as we get it back and we're loving on ourselves and create a life that reflects my values and loving on myself. Because it's so easy to give to everyone else, but to give, to honor yourself enough that you love on yourself, that's the real key. Next question. Here's a great one to end it on. Username follows up by saying, but I can't seem to ever make myself happy no matter what, right? And that's because you've got so much fucking pain inside of you. If you lack the ability to be happy or you're always down or you're always anxiety ridden or you, no matter what I do, I can't be happy. That is because your happy source, which is down inside the depths of your soul, your authentic self is naturally happy, will naturally be themselves unless there's so much pain and fear and bullshit beliefs you were taught about yourself that gets packed on top of it. This is the person who has dreams, let's say, but can't get up the motivation to pursue it or stops and starts, stops and starts. Or the person who's just always down and depressed or the person in a state of anxiety all the time or the person who's overthinking, living in fear of all the potential eventualities that could happen. It's a person self-medicating through gambling, through pills, through booze, through you're scrolling and swiping through any number of things, overworking, overparenting, overexercising, all of these are means to try to avoid the pain, right? To try to make myself happy, to either numb myself to all the pain inside or to feel something from all the numbness inside. But the bottom line is, is you're saying, I can't seem to ever make myself happy no matter what. Yeah, it's because you got so much fucking pain inside of you and you've got core beliefs inside of you that are undermining your entire existence. So, and I've talked about this, you've heard me talk about this before, the single biggest mistake people make in trying to get happy is they do more things that make them happy. You heard me on that. You can't just do more and more things to make you happy. If you've got giant sewer pipes dumping raw sewage on top of your head, if you have massive negative energy sources in your life, either from the present or from the past, it doesn't matter how many happy things you have. If you're eating raw sewage every day, dumping on top of you and you can't avoid it, that's negative energy sources. Until you get those negative energy sources out of your life, both your exterior life, but especially the interior life, the pain, the fears, the bullshit beliefs you've been taught about yourself, the more you get those out, the more you can begin to enjoy the very things that make you happy. One of the earmarks of depression is that the things that used to make you happy no longer make you happy. Yeah, you wanna know why? Because you got so much other shit in your life, so you gotta get the shit out of you. I encourage you and I tell people all the time, if you never remember anything else I say, remember this one thing. You wanna fucking become happy? You wanna finally have peace in your life? You wanna finally begin to be authentic? Just get all of that raw sewage out of you. Flush it out and keep flushing out and keep flushing out. And your own natural, authentic, happy self will bubble up from within. You will start to enjoy life again. You will feel lighter and lighter and lighter. You'll have more spontaneous energy. You will come alive again. So on that note, I want to thank you for tuning in to another exciting episode of the Badass Counseling Show Lightning Round. On behalf of my co-producers, Rob and KC, I wish you all a kick-ass day. The Badass Counseling Show is strictly copyrighted. No copies may be made without the express written consent of the Badass Counseling Show, LLC. The Badass Counseling Show is produced by Karen Camparelli and Robert H. Friedman. Executive producer, Sven Erlinson. Original music by two-time Emmy Award-winning composer, Trevor Morris. Have a kick-ass day. Hey.